everyone, and welcome to this next episode of the TMI podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Rocker Priori, and my co-host for today. Hi, I'm Joshua White. Since this season is all about networking, we thought it would be really important to have a very senior faculty give us some advice on how to network with senior faculty. So we are so, so excited to have Dean Shepard here with us today to discuss this important topic. Dean is the Ray and Milan Siegfried Professor of Entrepreneurship at the Mendoza College of Business at the University of Notre Dame. For those that are new to the field who may not know who Dean is yet, Dean is one of the most prolific scholars in the field of entrepreneurship. If you take a quick glance at his Google Scholar page, Dean has over 69,000 citations, 36,000 of which are just in the last five years. His research has won awards, has been published in top management journals, but more importantly, he is one of the most gracious and kind people that I have ever met. And almost anyone you talk to about Dean would say the same. So we're really excited to have him here for today's episode. To kick us off, we do every episode starts with an icebreaker question. And since we season four, we now have a new icebreaker question this season. If you could have any superpower, what superpower do you wish you had? Wow. I suppose it would be like Superman. So you could uh, leap tall buildings with a single bound. That would be mine. So why do you want to leap tall buildings? I, I don't know. I haven't thought much about uh, superpowers, really. So not flying, not being invisible. You just want to jump really high. Yeah, and like a man of steel sort of thing. So it doesn't matter what happens, whatever anyone throws at you, it just bounces straight off. Reviewer 2 comes at you, you just hold up your shield. Exactly. Um, can you give us a background on how you got to this stage of your career? Like, why did you decide to choose this career? How did you get to this point? Yeah, sure. I, I think I can try and do it briefly. Um, I did an undergraduate degree in applied science that led to no career. So then I worked in um, real estate for a while in property development and then had a chance to go back and do my MBA uh, at Bond University in Australia. And every day I would ride my bike to Bond um, and go down this, uh, this hill, looked at the beautiful university, and I just said, how lucky am I? You know, this is just so fantastic. And I did this every day. And then as I was getting through my um, MBA, I said, well, how can I do this for the rest of my life? You know, I just really enjoyed learning new stuff and, you know, just continuously exploring. And I also loved the university atmosphere where, uh, everyone who's there is excited to be there, you know. So even now I walk around the campus at the start of the semester and I just see the excitement as the parents drop their children off. And also at the end of the semester when the parents are there and everyone's so proud of what their, their children are achieving. Um, so, you know, I can't think of a better job where you choose what you want to do today. You know, no one tells you what to do. And then you're surrounded by people who are excited and who are curious and who are enthusiastic. Um, I, th I think that's just the best, the best career you could possibly have. So, you know, you talked, you've talked before in some of your papers, your, your speeches you've given about your dad being an entrepreneur. Did you never feel driven to pursue that route instead of being a professor? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I suppose when I was doing my PhD and my father's business failed, um, it probably probably pushed me the other way to think well, there's no way I want to do that. Um, you know, but in, any, in many ways, as, as uh, entrepreneurship professors, 
we face a lot of failure. I mean, we get rejected all the time, continuously. And I suppose you have to learn how to deal with that. Look, I think the skills are different, but then they're the same. So, you know, some of the skills are different in being an entrepreneur and that, you know, there are, there are practice things that you have to do all the time. But in some ways, I kind of think of myself as a little bit like an entrepreneur in that I'm trying to find research opportunities. I'm trying to use my idiosyncratic knowledge to kind of find those opportunities and those that I'm passionate about in order to pursue. Um, you know, so in, in many ways, what, I, what we research and what we teach for entrepreneurs, I think we can apply to ourselves as scholars. You know, so maybe I'm deceiving myself by saying that I'm like an entrepreneur, um, but, but I really love the career for the reason that I suggested before. It's just, you know, we're still embedded within a large institution, often uh, bureaucratic, but in many ways we can do whatever we like. You know? And so, you know, we're almost like independent contractors within in a, an umbrella of a, um, a university. So we have incredible freedom um, to be as creative as we like. Uh, you know, I, I know there's a tenure, a little thing called tenure, um, but also, you know, I suppose that's somewhat constraining, but after you get past that, then, then you should feel free or whenever you have a record sufficient, you know, you shouldn't worry about those things uh, too much. No, that's awesome. Well, you know, you were just talking about um, being at university and being surrounded by great people and um, how that was very rewarding. And that's actually, you know, the topic of this podcast in this season is, is networking and being around people. So um, I wondered if you could just comment on, um, you know, what you think about networking for doctoral students and, um, you know, trying to get established in your career and what role networking plays in that process. Yeah. So when I was doing my PhD in Australia, uh, there weren't a lot of people that were publishing. Um, so, you know, when I had a chance to come to, I think it was the Academy of Management, uh, you know, 30 odd hours of traveling to get there. It was such, such an absolute thrill. And when I was a doctoral student, I met Carl Vesper and I just went up to him and just started talking to him. And in the end, we've probably talked for about, I don't know, 20 minutes or half an hour about surfing. Like he was a big surfing fan. And uh, we didn't talk about work at all. But eventually, I, when I went back to Australia, I, I contacted him again and um, he agreed to be on my dissertation committee. So, you know, I don't always like to think about networking in the fact that it sounds very instrumental. Like, hi, my name's Dean, what can you do for me? It's more like, I like to think about it, I like to really meet interesting people and be curious about what they're working on um, and just kind of have interesting conversations with nice people. So the flip side of that is if, you, if, you know, if there's kind of a, a legendary scholar that they're a bit of an asshole, I wouldn't bother talking to them. You know, I mean, you, you don't need things that badly. Um, and I think maybe networking might suggest that you should. And my argument is, you know, why bother, right? I mean, it, there's more to life than just kind of these transactions that we get through networking. The, the one thing I would say about that is you can never ask, you, you'll never be in such a privileged position in your life than being a doctoral student and going up to a senior faculty member and says, hi, I'm a doctoral student. You could just about ask them anything at that point and you will get it 99% of the time. So I think, you know, the first thing you've got to do is overcome fear, the fear that 
that senior scholars like not a normal person and that they don't have compassion for what it's like being a doctoral student. So if you say I'm a doctoral student, they'll probably give you some help. If you say you're an assistant professor, yeah, probably still, but the doctoral student is in the sweet spot um, for being able to, to talk to senior people. I mean, as a senior person now, we've just started a doctoral program at the University of Notre Dame. You know, there's, there's nothing better than um, in a department having doctoral students because they bring a level of energy and enthusiasm and, you know, to a certain extent, very naive, which is a wonderful thing, right? Um, and so, I, you know, I think senior people really enjoy talking with doctoral students as well. It's not just a one-way uh, one street. But I also like to think of it as like it's the paying it forward. You know, Carl Vesper took the time to talk to me and it meant so much, you know, I traveled so far and I traveled all the way back and I still remember it all of this time later. That, you know, that I have an obligation um, if people come up and ask me a question um, for me to at least give them some time, some genuine time um, as a way to kind of pay back to Carl Vesper in the hope that those people will pay it forward when they become senior professors, which I assume that they will. I love that. That's such a such a nice answer, I think, to hear as a doc student. But I'm sure, especially with AOM approaching first in or even Babson approaching first in person conferences, I'm sure you will be approached by lots of doc students who have been dying to meet you. What is some advice on how these students, yes, coming up and saying, hey, I'm Ashley, I'm a doctoral student, but then not freezing and like having something to talk about. Do you talk about surfing? Do you talk about research? Like, where do you draw the line? Yeah, I'm fine talking about anything, really. You know, people come to talk to you for different reasons, and, and all of those reasons are fine. The one thing, you know, um, that sometimes the senior people will be talking to one person, and there might be other people waiting to talk. And so then that becomes a difficult situation because you want to give the person you're talking to your full attention. Um, but you can't talk to them for half an hour or 45 minutes because, you, you know, other people would also like to talk to you. So I try to do the best I can in a short period of time and then talk to other people and, and, and move forward that way. Also, you know, one way to do that is to be like a connector or a broker. So when they come and say, you know, I'm really interested in, you know, you know that research that you did on passion, and, you know, I'd say, passion, you should speak to Melissa Carden. She's just over there. Go and talk to her, you know. And it's not that I'm pushing you off, but hopefully, you know, we can connect you to, or, you know, my doctoral, my, my former doctoral students working on just that issue, you should meet them, right? And then, you know, so, so try and also be a connector. But be a little bit prepared to have a chat, but also be a little bit prepared that, you know, that we may not have enormous amounts of time and it's not us being greedy. I think it's like we want to be able to talk to many people as well. Yeah. So be respectful of the senior faculty's time and maybe don't expect to talk for 20 minutes. Yeah, I think it might be even more like be respectful of the other doctoral students' time who wants to also speak, not so much my time, right? So for me, like I'm at the Entrepreneurship Social I'm there just to talk to people. So, so that's fine. So it's not, it's not like you're taking my time away, but it's, I suppose it's 
taking time away from other people. But I think it's also fine, you know, if, if I'm talking with one doctoral student, then other, you know, multiple people, we can, I can talk to multiple people at one time if everyone doesn't mind, because often uh, what we're talking about kind of applies uh, more generally. So, um, you know, in terms of building relationships, um, both like networking at events and then afterwards, you know, um, what are some expectations that, that you have um, from doctoral students, you know, how should, how should they behave in terms of cultivating a new relationship or maintaining it over time? Um, do you have any tips um, in, in that regard? Yeah, I think it's easier. Like, as I said, if I'm at the social, I'm at the social, and then that's what I expect to do. But, you know, the email things, that's when it starts getting a little bit tougher when, when people send you papers, can you read this paper? Well, man, I've got like 50 million things on my list of things to do. Um, you know, so I suppose you might say something like, you know, can you help me with this particular thing or this particular thing? So following up with the emails and giving that person a, a large task when that person already has many, many things on their plate um, can be a, a large request, I think, maybe, maybe an overly strong, a strong request or, or be very specific if you do, you know, and also, you know, uh, some some professors, not many of them, like to be called Professor Shepherd or Doctor Shepherd. Um, so you know, sometimes it might be worth starting that way. And I bet you the first thing they're going to say is, "Just call me Dean." Right? I remember doing that at the University of Louisville, and they said, "All right, Doctor Dean." So I thought, okay, I can't change their whole culture, right? But um, uh, yeah, so you know, maybe start a little bit more formal, and then and then take the cues from the person and then, then it will become very relaxed very quickly. I think the only thing that ever used to get to me was it would be like 11, 30, 12 o'clock. I've got a beer in my hand and someone comes up and says, why did you reject my paper at the Journal of Business Venture? You know, and you think, oh, come on, man. Look, it's nearly midnight and I'm drinking a beer and you're asking me, and then you're asking me about something. I can't remember my own papers. How am I going to remember your paper and the reviews that I sent to you months ago? So those things are a little bit frustrating, you know. So I suppose you don't assume, like if you ask Howard Aldrich about his paper in 2002, rightfully so, he may not remember exactly what he said, you know, what he said in that paper. So, but I think, you know, that, that question's fine, so long as you kind of, you can tell him what he said or what I said in my papers. But I think those questions are fine. You know, I, I don't think there's too many things um, off limits. I suppose try not to get too heavy on um, on things. But even then, I think that, even then, I think that's fine. So you a couple of I think it was two years ago in it might have been the bat no it was AOM Doc Consortium. Um, you had been invited to do like a guest speaker type thing, and I remember you telling the story about how you really wanted to work with Marilyn on a paper and you were so excited that she said yes. And I remember thinking how gracious and how humble that he was so excited to work with someone earlier in their career. I'm sure that you probably get so many people that say, hey, Dean, here's a, here's a paper. Can you work on this with me? Um, what should doc students do if they wanna, if there's like a, an area of research that they're doing that's really in your wheelhouse to build that relationship with you into eventually a co-author relationship? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good question. And I'm not sure I have a good answer. Um, 
you know, sometimes it comes through, for example, through your supervisor, right? So, I mean, you know, you work with Melissa and I know Melissa really well and she contacts me and says, you know, Ashley and I are working on this thing, you know, how about you, you know, have a look at it and, and see if you want to join. You know, sometimes it works like that. You know, a lot of people do contact you out of the blue. Um, you know, often I say no to those things because, you know, one thing is giving feedback to people. The other thing is forming a co-authoring relationship. And that's tough if you if you don't know someone or you barely know someone. So that's tough. I think, you know, I'm more likely to say no to someone who sent me a paper that's like a review paper or a theory paper or something like that because there's still a lot of work that needs to get done on those sorts of things where the outcome is highly uncertain and it might depend on me needing to rewrite nearly everything. But if someone comes with some, you know, some really unique data that really kind of captures your attention and they've really done a good job um, so far, um, you know, then, then, you may be, then maybe you've got a possibility. Yeah. So I asked Ashley, I was like, you know, if we're doing this podcast, we, I want to ask you for, on behalf of all the listeners, you know, there's a lot of people that will be listening to this saying, how can I be the next Dean Shepherd? And I want to, I want to know what you think about that. What would you tell to that person? I was so uncertain when I was a doctoral student, you know, I remember when I was, I, I still remember now standing in the university at, um, library on university and I held a ETP in my hand and a JBV. And I said, maybe one day I might get you know, one or two papers in this one, and I might get one in that. And um, so I've exceeded my own expectations by a million fold. Um, you know, I think um, the one thing that I would say that I've done well, if I can be so immodest, was really working with people that I like um, and having long relationships working with them, right? So, you know, it kind of makes it fun. Uh, we trust each other. Um, they completely rewrite stuff that I did. I completely write, rewrite things that they do. Um, and we've always kept somewhat flexible in, we, you know, we work on related topics, but then we also look for new and interesting things that keep us interested uh, in it. So, you know, I've, I've had some amazing and wonderful um, co-authors, quite a lot of them, but, you know, we, we work together a lot of the time. You know, I think that that's the thing that's been, um, you know, that, that if I had a, a suggestion for people, I would say it's not an easy thing to do, but find a co-author uh, that you uh, get along with and you enjoy and you trust. Um, perhaps someone who has complementary skills, but that may or may not be necessary. And I've always found that it, it worked at the with people initially, uh, at least early, with people who were my peers. So we made a whole lot of mistakes, Zach and I, when we first started out. But at least they were our mistakes and we learned from those mistakes. So we didn't work with seniors a lot. We just worked with each other. Um, I think that's, that's, that's what I would say. You find your own style too, you know what I mean? So I, when my kids were young, I didn't see them in the mornings because I'd go off to work when it's pitch black, but I'd be home not long after school after they got home from school. So, you know, it's just, it was just a way of finding what, what works for you, what works best for you. You know, I have a certain tempo with my research. I would find fellow researchers who 
who had the same sort of tempo, um, we worked well together and we kept working together. Those that had a different tempo or a different style that didn't work, we, we stopped working together, even though it was promising that we might get more papers in high quality journals. If I wasn't enjoying it and it wasn't part of the whole thing, then, then I would leave it. It makes me think, Joshua, we had um, in season two, we had James Vardaman talk about be open to when these strikes of creativity will hit you, that you could be working on something in your writing. And so if you have these little bounds of time that I'm going to write for an hour today or 2,500 words, you're bounding that creativity that if you just write, you could get a lot more stuff out of it because you're just giving yourself the time to do that. Yeah, I have a whole lot of little tools that I use that work for me. Please offer these. This is what uh, a lot of people probably wish we would have gotten into instead. Yeah. So after my uh, doctoral program, because I, during my doctoral program, I think I was teaching like 14 one-hour tutorials a week, three semesters a year. So it was basically a whole year. Um, but I just said to myself, I'm not going to work weekends because it's not sustainable. And then when I had young kids. And I still, even though my kids are grown up now, I still force myself not to work on the weekends, even though I want to, so that I'm busting to get in, back into it on Monday. And also just what you were saying, Ashley, about the compressed time. You know, I work from 7 until 4.30 or 4.15. And then I, you know, I just work intensely, but then I have the evenings off and I don't work the weekends. And it kind of really rejuvenates me. And also, I suppose you... You, you know, have a period of incubation where you're not thinking about work, but in the back of your mind, you're still thinking about it. So I try and follow that, uh, follow that hard and fast rule about time. You know, you, it's impossible to do as a doctoral student. Yeah, I mean, that's why I said you know, when I finished my doctoral program, that's when I created my schedule for how I was going to work. But when you're a doctoral student, you don't have control over your own schedule in some ways. And, it, and also, you know, you're you're under somewhat tighter deadlines. It's too weird, too chaotic as a doctoral student. To you just got to get stuff done when you can get it done as a doctoral student, right? But you can't. I don't think you can sustain that work style as a successful career strategy, you know, for a decade or or more. Right? So then then you just have to find what works for you. No, I mean I think um, I think that's great advice, honestly. And um, yeah, I, I definitely agree. Um, it's hard to do in the doctoral program, um, but but thank you for, for sharing your advice with us. But I'm hearing more and more people start talk more about job fit within the culture. Do you think culture has always been this big of a deal with jobs, or do you think this is like something that is now becoming more of a thing, maybe post-COVID? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a complicated question. You know, not everyone needs culture. You know, so some people um, are happy to work on their own and work from home, you know, and so they don't care about organisation, you know, the culture so much. In the old days, but not so much now, we used to worry about will they accept our entrepreneurship research as legitimate, right? And so you want to know those, those sorts of things. But as I said, I don't think that that seems to be an issue anymore. Um, sometimes people want to publish with the people where they're applying for a job. Um, for me, that's never been so important because I've always had other people that I'm working with. So, you know, I like having nice people around me. And we and when I was at Indiana, we'd go out for dinner and with, with all my friends. 
but we, we didn't publish much together. And same at Notre Dame, you know, I'm the only entrepreneurship person there. Um, we rarely work together, but I love the climate. You know, I mean, it's the people are friendly and, uh, and, and all of those types of things. So, so people look for different things, you know. Um, maybe as a junior scholar, it might be different than what it would be as a senior scholar. Um, like the journalists at Notre Dame, I didn't worry about when I applied because it didn't matter to me anymore, right? I mean, there's no more promotions, there's no tenure that, that when, you're, when you're more junior, you might care about, or you will care about those sorts of things. So, yeah. Last question to wrap it all up. Knowing what you know now, given the career you've had, what is one thing you wish you had known when you started your doctoral program? First, I'd like to say my career is still not over. I haven't had it. Like it's it's not finished. Hopefully, my my plan is my plan is to keep going. Yeah, I mean my doctoral program was harsh. Um, we taught, as I told you, nonstop throughout the whole program. Um, we had not many people at the university that published, so I didn't learn anything about that. Um, but I was fortunate to have one guy there. His name's Evan Douglas. And he took me to the US and to conferences. And I learned a lot from him. You know, the first thing was never take yourself too seriously. Um, always have a good time. Anyway, I, you know, it, it, was, um, it was harsh, but you know, as soon as I got to the US and they, someone said to me, you can have a 2-2 teaching load. I said, a 2-2 teaching load? He said, that's fantastic. You know? So I wouldn't give up anything that I've been through uh, you know, in some ways, I kind of wish that I'd perhaps done my PhD in the US. Um, but it's kind of like um, trial by fire. You know, if you kind of make it through the Australian system and you get to the US, then you're well positioned to kind of survive uh, in, in the system. So, but I, I don't regret, I don't regret anything really. Thank you so much. It's great to meet you. Thank you so much for being here with us. Yeah, I appreciate you being on here, Dean. This is awesome. Thank you. Thanks for doing it to, for, uh, for the community. I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing. So we want to say a big thank you again to Dean for joining us on this episode of the TMI Entrepreneurship Podcast. As usual, if you have any questions, suggestions, feedback for future episodes, please be sure to send it to our email, tmientpod at gmail.com. Be sure to click the follow and or subscribe link so you can find out about future episodes and share it with your friends if you think it could be of use to them as well. We will have one more episode for this season about networking with your peers, and then we will end this whole year's episodes with a special bonus episode about the job market that will release right before AOM. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, we look forward to reading your comments and suggestions, and we will see you next time.